We're going to be doing Psalm 133 tonight. We'll be looking at different psalms all semester. Uh, and tonight we're talking about what Devin prepared us for uh, on community. And uh, every week I kind of want to give you a little bit of like a, another reason why we're doing the psalms. Uh, these are songs that were sung by God's people uh, and still are today. And one of the reasons that we're looking at them is um, kind of Aristotle gets at it with this quote when he says, The intellect itself moves nothing. The link between thinking and doing is to feel. He says, The intellect itself does nothing. The link between thinking something, like knowing some data, and actually doing something is feeling. C.S. Lewis said it this way, he said, The transition from thinking to doing in nearly all men at nearly all moments needs to be assisted by appropriate states of feeling. So how do you get from knowing something to doing something? In between the knowing and the doing, you have to feel it. That's what compels you to do it. And so that's what songs do. Uh, This is a silly example. It's similar to something I talked about last week with students. But like, you can know and articulate the data that breaking up sucks, right? When you sing with Kelly Clarkson since you've been gone, you feel the breaking up sucks, right? Psalms are, are, are truth felt. Uh, it, it is the act of knowing something and then actually feeling it. And they will, hopefully, uh, Lord willing, move us to action. So, read with me from Psalm 133. Uh, this is a Psalm of David. It's very brief, and we'll look at it. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this song, and it's written in a time and a place where we don't understand all of the details, dear Lord, that's written by your servant David, and it's written rejoicing regarding community, dear God. And we pray that we would seek and find in your word truths about community, about friendship and fellowship, and about the joy of being with God's people and worshiping together. And I pray that that would touch into our hearts and we begin to feel the joy of it and begin to do it all the more. Holy Spirit, we need you with us when we look at your word. In your name we pray. Amen. So tonight we're looking at Christian community. And um, it's kind of like, it's frustrating that we're going to, in a sense, lecture through a song. The best thing to do would be to sing it in order to feel it. And the also frustrating thing is that I actually preach more like a lawyer and less like a poet. I'm not like eloquent in all these different ways. I just like, argue things and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the goal of the text is really to get us to go from knowing, um, knowing that being a Christian means being that we're a part of a community and that we're supposed to have this rich experience of fellowship, from knowing that to beginning to do that. And, uh, and so I hope that we begin to feel, that you begin to feel a pull towards God's people. And when we say community tonight, I really mean it in like the broadest terms. I think you should consider it in all three ways as we talk about it. I mean it both in your immediate group of friends that you're close with, that know you deeply and intimately, that you work out your faith alongside of. Um, but I also mean it in the broadest sense of the people of God in total. But actually also, and probably what this hymn, this hymn speaks to most specifically, and maybe this is where you need to think about it the most, is the people of God gathered together for worship. Because what this song is written for is, you'll see in the title, it's called A Song of Ascents, and there's this little 
kind of hymn book within a hymn book at the end of the Psalms. And it's these songs that are written and all called a song of, uh, songs of ascent. And what they are is they're pilgrimage songs. Three times a year, the Jewish people would travel to Jerusalem for these holy days, for these feasts together, and these were their traveling songs that they would sing together. So these songs were sung in the anticipation of worshiping together, going to the temple, and being with God's people. So in a sense, as we talk about community, what the Jewish people were thinking about when they sang the songs, they were thinking primarily about temple worship, about corporate worship and being with God's people. So think about it, your group of friends, think about it in the church in total, but I would say most of all, think about it in... Uh, the paradigm of the local worshiping body of God's people, uh, whatever that looks like for you, and hopefully, hopefully you're moving towards one of those. Um, so here, here's, in some sense, the main point boiled down to start with, and then we'll explore it, and it's simply this. Rainbow's probably a dated movie now. I don't know if y'all have seen that, but this is the way I always think about it. There's just no such thing as Rainbow Christianity. Uh, the movie Rambo is an old Sylvester Stallone movie where he's this individual soldier who just accomplishes these ridiculous missions, and it's all about being alone and like how strong he is alone and everything. Okay, the Bible never views you being a Christian in that method at all, ever. And it actually argues pretty strongly that there's no such thing as Christian maturity outside of God's people. That we grow up together in Ephesians, we grow up together into maturity um, together, as a mature body together. Um, the main story of the Bible, here's, here's what the main story of the Bible is not. The main story of the Bible is not that, God, that Jesus died to save your sins individually. That is a sub-point in the Bible, but it's not the main story. The main story of the Bible is that God is making a people for himself. When the new heavens and the new earth is described at the end of Revelation, it's talking about a city. It's not talking about you as an individual. Here's something I always, uh, you need to know that the Bible is primarily written to churches, received by churches, and read in churches, and applied together corporately within churches. And one good practice to do, especially in Paul's letters, I always encourage people to do this, is almost every time Paul uses the second person uh, pronoun you, almost every time it's actually plural in Greek. Unfortunately, the translators on the translation panel, this is just really true, there just weren't any Southerners. Because in the South, we actually have a separate word from second person plural, y'all. Literally, Paul is saying y'all every time. He's not saying you. And we're prone to read it like God's addressing us individually. He's not. He's addressing the church corporately. Uh, the Bible is a story about God uh, preparing a people for himself, not just saving you. You happen to be a subpoint. In that story, um, if you're not a Christian here tonight, if you're kind of you're looking in and you're wondering, you're going to hear described well, at first what feels like an unapproachable ideal, right? Um, that has nothing in common with what you maybe see or think about the church today. And here's what I would ask: wait and listen to the whole talk and see if in the third point that we actually there's actually a hope that we can begin to, and maybe it's already possible, this kind of community we're going to describe um, exists. Um, so three aspects of community that we're going to look at in this text, and it's what true community feels like, what it looks like, and where it comes from. What it feels like, what it looks like, where it comes from. And the first one is what it feels like. This is a song, right? And David's celebrating. The first thing he's celebrating is what it feels like to be with God's people. 
right? Literally, the existential experience of it. How does he feel? And he says this, he kind of gives us three little aspects of the way it feels. And the first thing he says is, behold, he says, look. He calls people, look how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. And he gives us those two words, good and pleasant. And when you ask, what, what does the word good mean? At first, it sounds like a simple question. If you think about it for three more seconds, you realize, okay, defining the word good is actually really complex. Um, trying to put it down into a technical definition. And I think the safest place, the safest way we can develop an understanding of what the word good means, he's saying how good it is to be with God's people in worship, uh, is to look how Scripture uses the word good. And maybe in the place that's most prominently used, as Genesis 1, when creation's made. Before sin and brokenness has entered into the world, and God made things, and as He made things, He kept looking at them, and He kept on declaring, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good. And I think maybe the safest way to define what does good mean, it means this, the way things were supposed to be. When David's describing fellowship here, He's describing the goodness of Christians together, and what he's saying is when you enter into it, when you get to participate in that kind of community and that kind of fellowship together, this is what you feel. You'll feel like, this is what friendship was supposed to be like. This is what it was supposed to be like. The anxiety of loneliness and division and fights and roommates and, and alienation and parents and all that stuff. The reason that all of that struggle within relationships brings so much disruption and and takes so much peace from our hearts, is because that's not the way it was supposed to be. You're supposed to be unsettled by relational conflict. You should never be at peace with that. Community, true community, when you experience it, when you experience something in your heart's going to feel, oh, that's what it's supposed to be like. Several weeks ago, I went to um, the Dutch Goose with just a bunch of, bunch of guys here. And we sat around the table for a long time drinking and telling stories and talking theology and sports and talking about our lives and laughing, literally like laughing to the point of tears. And like that was one of those moments where it's like, oh, this is it. This is the way friendship's supposed to happen. This is the way it was supposed to be. So fellowship, this kind of community, it's going to feel like, ah, this is how friendship, this this is what it's like to just be with people. It's going to feel like this is the way it's supposed to be. Secondly, it's going to be pleasing. David describes it as actually pleasant. Because sometimes, this is our pastor in South Carolina pointed this out, sometimes what's good for you is not always pleasant, right? Like medicine, uh, like your educational experience here, you know? It's good for you, it's not pleasant, right? Sometimes things are pleasant but not good for you, right? Maybe that's even how you think about Christianity. It's like denying me all this pleasure. David's actually saying, no, 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 this is good for you, and it's pleasant. It's enjoyable. And that's really kind of complimented, and it's described more poetically in verse 3, when he says, it's like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, David's using some some imagery from the ancient Near East. Um, He's using some local geography, and what you have to know is Mount Hermon's actually 100 miles north of the mountains of Zion. He's talking about the mountains of Zion, he's talking about Jerusalem. Mount Hermon is 100 miles north. The point being, the dew from Mount Hermon never comes to Mount Zion. Right? So what's he talking about? In the simplest terms, this is literally what he's meditating on and thinking about. He's thinking about the refreshing that comes from being away. Right? 
from being away from the hustle, from the stress, from the craziness, from the concrete, right, from the stench, from just the craziness of life. He's thinking about the pleasantness, literally in some sense of like being in his mountain cabin, right? Away from it all, a good, some of y'all had crazy spring breaks, some of y'all had good, slow, refreshing spring breaks, right? (laughs) Away from everything. You found contentment and you found rest. So what is he saying here, right? He's saying this, the family of God being together in unity, it transports that sense of refreshment that's a hundred miles away that's only held in these other places into, into the busyness of life here and now, into like midterm laden, busy, paper writing, deadlines everywhere, laundry undone, crazy roommate, you don't have summer plans yet, into this crazy right now. Being with God's people is taking that refreshing and that retreat time. Retreats are good when you can have them, take advantage of them. What he's saying is, you know, you don't just have to have that experience out there. Being together with God's people is like bringing that refreshing into the chaos of now, into the mountains of Zion, into dirty, nasty, busy Jerusalem, right? It's good, it's pleasant, it's refreshing. He's saying we're made for community. That Stanford knows that, right? Why are there so many dorm events? Because they know they've got to get the freshmen connected to community here so that they'll stay here and so they'll enjoy their experience, their experience, right? They know that you have to be connected to be happy here. This is why they punish prisoners with solitary confinement, right? They withdraw them from community. Why do depression and loneliness go hand in hand? Because you're made for community. Why do people with dementia... If they go into a nursing home, why, do they, why does their condition worsen all the quicker? Because they were made for community. Why is your first instinct when anything good happens to you is to tell somebody? Because you're made to connect in all the best things in life. There's a great movie, I'm sure a lot of y'all have seen it, called Into the Wild. I love it, strongly recommend it. And Chris McCandless is the main character, and this is a true story. They found his journal, made this movie, wrote a book, and uh, made this movie. He's just frustrated with people and the world and society. That's what he always calls it. Society, man. Society. Right? And so he goes on this kind of long voyage to basically cut off every relationship. If I can just get on my own. This is what he says earlier in the movie. He's frustrated. He says, you don't need human relationships to be happy. God has placed it all around us. Saying God's placed happiness all around us in nature. You don't need people. People just get in the way. People, they're the worst, right? Um, That's a Seinfeld line. That's... Uh, Jerry and Elaine go, people, I know, they're the worst. Um, sorry, I distracted myself. But um, at the end of the movie, this spoils the ending, but it doesn't matter because it's a phenomenal movie regardless. Um, he's out in the woods by himself. He's isolated himself. Um, he didn't understand the geography and the nature of the area. He actually ate a root, ate or accidentally ate a root that poisoned himself, and he knew he was dying. And so he's literally writing his last pages in his journal to tell people of his experience. And the last line he actually wrote, we have the journal, um, and this is how the movie ends, is this. He says, happiness is only real when it's shared. His great experiment was a failure. He's not a hero in the movie for being a strong individual. He makes a, a tragic realization and it results in his death. We're made for community. It feels sweet to be in it. That's what community feels like. So what does it look like then? 
what will it look like? Um, David doesn't say, how good and pleasant is it when the family of God dwells together? He doesn't say that. He says, how good and pleasant is it when the family of God dwells together in unity? He tells us what it will feel like. It's going to be good and pleasant, but also the nature of it. You can't have it without unity. Within true unified community, what makes a community unified? A common set of values, right? Something central at it, core truths that you're centered on. Unity is always unity around something. And so you have God's people going back and forth, right? To all these temple feasts and these temple ceremonies. And they're coming from all over. So what is the center of the unity that they're thinking about? It's the temple worship of the one true God. That's what they're thinking about when they think unity. They're going back and forth to these feasts. They're singing this song in this feast. And they're thinking... It is good and pleasant when we dwell together in unity, meaning when we come to the temple and worship the one true God and center our lives on Him. Paul talks about unity all over the New Testament. In Ephesians 4, he says this. He's talking about community. He says, Walk in humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity, the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. He says this, There's one body, the church, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. Notice the characteristics of unity that Paul talks about. Unity involves patience. Unity involves humility. Unity involves bearing with people. Now why is it important to see? He's talking about unity. He's talking about unity in the Spirit, the church being bound together. Right? What well, goes along with what Paul also says in 1 Corinthians when he calls the church a body, meaning that we're all different parts and we need all the different parts and there's different personalities and there's different gifts and they're all unified under one head, right? One God, one Jesus. Here's the point. Biblical unity is awesome and biblical unity is utterly unique because it's a unity that is a multiplicity or a diversity of personalities, of giftings, of cultures, of ethnicities, a multiplicity of things with one common value, that is Jesus. The, the way the Bible envisions unity is God's people together being filled with the Spirit of Christ. Here's an interesting thing. The presence of the Holy Spirit, this is something we want, right? We want the presence of the Spirit, we want to feel the Spirit. When it's talked about in the New Testament... Here's how it's not talked about. It's not talked about an, as an ecstatic worship experience. Right? That's what we want sometimes. That's what we think. The presence of the Spirit is when I just I feel powerful things during an ecstatic worship experience. Okay, in 1 Corinthians 10 11, Paul's talking to the church at Corinth. And they're struggling with this issue because these people want to have these ecstatic worship experiences all the time. And he's saying, listen, y'all got to understand, it's not about that. And I've, and I've been to Corinth where Paul stood and he dealt with the Corinthians. We've taken students there for the last two years at South Carolina. And, uh, and the reason he's sitting there and he's saying, like, y'all got to understand, stop thinking that it's just the Holy Spirit if you have an ecstatic worship experience. He's actually saying it's about Christian love. It's about Christian love. It's about being unified in Christ and loving one another because of that. Stop getting so fascinated with tongues. The reason he says that because you, if you stand in downtown Corinth, where he stood, where it's been excavated, right over the Gulf of Corinth, on the other side of the Gulf of Corinth, not far away, is this huge mountain where the oracles of Delphi lived. 
And Paul said these words right at that time, knowing that they all looked across the gulf, which is not very far, just a couple of miles, and they saw this place where people that worshipped other gods also spoke in tongues and also had ecstatic worship experiences. He's saying, y'all, stop being fascinated by that stuff. What distinguishes us, what is the presence of the Holy Spirit, is Christian love. Because there are other people worshiping other gods that are also speaking in tongues and having ecstatic worship experiences. Listen, I'm not saying your elevated experience during worship is not from the Holy Spirit, but here's what I am saying. We can't be sure. And Paul's saying, I really don't care. You need to think about love. Are you full of love? That's how we know it's the Holy Spirit. Okay? So the Holy Spirit's not most clearly identified when you have an ecstatic worship experience. We're not saying it's bad. We're just, not saying, it's tr- we're just saying it's not trustworthy. The other thing is, the Holy Spirit's not necessarily present when you finally find the ideal community of Christians. Right? Sometimes we think that, and we misunderstand the Spirit, when we divide ourselves from the people of God, from the church, thinking... They don't get it, but I do it for real because I'm serious about this. I got my theology down and I have some insights they don't have. And so I withdraw. Right? You look at the church and you think, oh, you know? And they separate and you form your own circle of people who take it seriously and have that insight that you happen to have. And here's the reality. In that attitude, you're actually manifesting the exact opposite of the presence of the Holy Spirit. The key mark of the Holy Spirit is unity within the body of Christ. Not, I can't stand the body of Christ, so I'm going to withdraw. Right? Here's what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says. He's, he's eloquent about this. He says, He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter. Listen to that again. He who loves your dream of a community more than the actual Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial, even if his intentions are good. Listen to this. This is Bonhoeffer being rhetorical. Don't get upset at the language. Listen to him. He's beautiful. God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and contentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. And so he enters the community of Christians with his demands. And he sets up his own law, and he judges the brethren, and God himself accordingly. And he stands adamant as a living reproach, a living judgment, on everybody else in the circle. He acts as if he is the creator of Christian community, as if his dream binds men together. And when things don't go his way, he calls the effort a failure. When his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. Do you hear what Bonhoeffer's saying? When you get irritated with the community of God because they don't reach your ideal, then what you're saying is, I don't like the way God's doing church. And become a judge, both of Christians and of God himself. You're envisioning of this ideal community and unwillingness to be a part of a community until some community reaches that. It's actually testimony to the absence of the Holy Spirit, in a sense when we never participate in church because we think we see something more clearly that everybody else doesn't see, that actually means you're actually missing the very truth you think you see. That In fact, you're the one missing. When Paul talks about the presence of the Holy Spirit in Philippians 2, he says, if the Spirit is present with you at all, then live together getting along with each other. If the Holy Spirit's there, this is what it'll look like. It'll look like community. 
Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, long-suffering. These are the marks of the Spirit. They're all relational. They're all communal. When Paul's talking to Corinth, he says, you're eager, this is what he says, you're eager for the Spirit? If you are, here's what you should do. Build up the church. Together. The common value, the common theme, the common experience. The main thing that the Spirit of God is about is bringing people together into and under and with Jesus. And this is the key. This is the beautiful key. Not destroying the differences, but actually redeeming the differences and enriching the church and our fellowship with each other with all those differences. And this is what I mean. Now, what we need is we need to know some poor people. And we need to know some rich people. And we need to have fun with some young people. And we need to spend some time with some old people and some white people and some black people and some Asian people and Latino people and some African people and some Middle Eastern people. Y'all, we need to be friends with Democrats and we need to be friends with Republicans and even Libertarians. We need to be friends with Greeks and non-Greeks, right? With fuzzies and techies, Yankees, Southerners, West Coast, even Canadians are welcome in God's people, right? (laughs) Y'all, we need mechanical engineering PhDs and we need people who run inner-city missions We need farm missionaries who have given up a lot. We need to hang out with startup CEOs. We are mutually blessed by each other precisely because of the differences and the distinctions. And the worst possible thing that could happen for the church is if everybody became a foreign missionary. Or if everybody became a startup CEO. Or if everybody went to Stanford. Right? The distinctions are a blessing. And now the question is, if we're going to gather and celebrate, what's the only kind of thing that can produce unity while retaining all those beautiful distinctives? And it's the grace of Jesus. And this is what verse 2 is about, and this is the foundation of community. This is the third point. Here's the tension, right? How can this happen? How can Christianity resolve the natural obstacles to community without dissolving actually the uniquenesses among people, the uniquenesses among cultures and ethnicities and personalities? It's verse 2. That's how. The one that's really weird, right? It's like the precious blood. He's talking about the community. It's like the precious, uh, the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. The goodness of, of, of Christian community is like this oil on this priest. That's what's being depicted here. They immediately knew when they sang the song, they understood the context. We need to look further back in the Old Testament to get what they already knew. It's pointing to these passages in Exodus 28 and 29 when the priestly office is instituted. And the first priest is Aaron. He's kind of like, he's the first high priest. And it's referring to this moment when the priest, when Aaron himself is actually set apart for the office, when when God anoints Aaron with oil, and it makes Aaron acceptable before the Lord. It makes the priest acceptable before the Lord. And the priest has to become acceptable before the Lord so that he can then go fulfill the work of making Israel, God's people, acceptable before the Lord. So that he could go and make sacrifice for the people of Israel before the Lord. And what this passage, one of the cool details about this passage is, it says the oil spills down onto his collar. It's this picture of so much oil that it spills down onto his collar. Again, 
The Jews who are singing the song knew exactly what was happening right here. In Exodus 28, we're actually told in very specific detail what clothes the priest was supposed to wear. And one of the things that's in detail is his collar. And it's told that he's supposed to have a collar that has 12 stones on it. And in Exodus 28, God says, and each stone represents each tribe of the people of God. So he wore this thing right across the front, the oil spilled down onto, that was all that represented all the people of God. What's being depicted here is God making his people acceptable before him again. Right? God's people getting made acceptable. And how are they made acceptable? By God's anointing. By God's grace. Grace that was constantly foreshadowed in the temple sacrifice of animals and that was finally fully displayed and manifested in the final true priest, which is Jesus. The priest which all the priests beforehand and all this temple sacrifice beforehand was pointing towards, almost kind of sacramentally. It was pointing towards the one true priest who really would take away the sins of the world, who takes on the sins of those who ask him and bears them only so that we no longer stand condemned. It's grace, and grace is not an idea, and grace is not a worldview, and it's not a philosophy. It's grace acted out in a real historical moment 2,000 years ago. Jesus dying for our sins. This is a historical event that we announce to ourselves and we announce to the world. There's no more condemnation. There's no more condemnation. You can't reacquire it next week or two years from now or five years from now or 30 years from now. There's no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The only way that true, deep, unified community can happen is by the experience of God's unmerited, forgiving favor, His grace. And the image that they sing here, and the image that we sing, connects unity intrinsically with grace. It connects, you can't think of them apart from each other, because only grace can actually produce the kind of unity we're talking about, as opposed to just flimsy, patronizing tolerance, right? So here's the problem, here's... This is how we've started to get to begin to diagnose the fact that we find it hard to experience this community at times, and it's true of all of us, me included. The problem is not that people are too different, or that they don't have a good enough theology, or that their worship is too contemporary, or that their worship is too traditional, or that they don't, they're not as sincere as me, right? The reason that we experience dissension and frustrating barriers to connection and to community with people that are really different from us, right? Is because we still understand so little of grace. It's the reason why. Because grace destroys division. It destroys any notion that you're superior to anybody else by virtue of anything in you, by virtue of your intellect, your education, your actions, your insight, your sincerity, right? Your morality, your politics, right? Your power, your influence, your body... So we all think think that the way the world gets made right is if I work hard enough and achieve my dreams, right? You know, the thing that destroys community is to think that you're a bad person because you've worked hard enough and achieved your dreams. That's what destroys unity and friendship because you begin to believe that there are certain things about me and choices I've made and thoughts I've had that set me apart from everybody else. I don't want to catalog stuff... um, but let's just be honest, and let's use the words we don't want to use, but we know are actually true of our heart. We all despise certain types of people. 
and who you despise, who you dismiss, who you look at or hear from, I mean, you know, I'm not going to go into the politics conversation, but that's an easy place to go really quick because we immediately despise people who think differently than us in that area, right? We don't want to use that term despise because we think, well, I don't despise them, I just differ from them. But no, in our hearts we're dismissive of and critical of people who do different things and think different things from us. Meaning that we think the thing that makes us better is that I do different things and I think different things. Which means there's no humility, there's no community, and there's no unity. I can't be with those people. The key to unity and community is to see that all of life is grace from beginning to end. It's grace from beginning to end. It's the great, it levels the playing field for everybody. Because grace says, no, 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 you're just not set apart because, oh, you went to Stanford. You're not set apart because, oh, you have a great moral record. You're not set apart because you're a Republican or because you're a Democrat. You're just not set apart for any of those reasons. Grace is the only, is, it's the only path to unity. You have to understand it's grace from beginning to end. Okay, this is what we need to think about. We don't just need to think about the cross. Yes, think about the cross and Jesus dying for our sins, but grace. But realize God's act of creating was grace. He didn't need to. He wasn't compelled to. He chose to. His mere creation was grace. His sustaining of all creation, moment by moment, is grace. Every moment is a moment of grace. Right? He chose to do it out of his own delight. God's gift of giving you, Lord willing, hopefully, two working hips, two working legs, shoulders, and food daily, that's grace. It's still grace every day. Right? Each of them are gifts from him. The brain that got you in here, guess what? It's not your fault. It was grace. The work ethic that you think you have that sets you apart, guess what? You wouldn't have it unless I put you in an environment that developed it. It was grace. I'm sorry, but your SAT just wasn't your fault. You know? It was grace. There's nothing you can boast of. There's nothing you can look at in life and not say that was not a gift from God. Now, the way it was a gift from Him might be different. You might have to think about it. But just, you just didn't have made much of yourself, and neither have I. It's really all grace. And here's the beautiful thing. Grace doesn't actually then demean humanity. It actually ennobles humanity because it says your worth is not what you've made of yourself. Your worth is in the Lord's favor. That he's freely given to you. Which you could have never earned and which washes away sins and wipes away the verdict that our sins had passed on us. It's actually only belief that we're valuable because of our works, because of what we've done. It's actually only that that demeans humanity because when you begin to believe that, you believe, hey, there's some A's, there's some people that are making A's in life. And there's people making C's and D's and F's. And so then you have cause to demean certain portions of humanity, right? The only hope of community, the only hope of peace with God is the same thing, it's grace. If we get this, how can we ever speak to or interact with another individual, whether they're a believer or not, without incredible humility? Right? The key to community is this, is to let the stories of the Bible, the good news from the Bible, the things about God and His holiness, the things about our sinfulness, and the things about Jesus' love, to empty us of our own high thoughts of ourselves. To confront that offense and let empty us of our own high thoughts of ourselves and empty us of our own, of our low thoughts of others and instead be filled with true thoughts about Jesus. And then when you meet other people who also know Jesus, it's a delight. And when you meet people who don't know Jesus, you want to show them who He is. And with no hint of an air of superiority, but rather with joyful humility, humble because you're a beggar and only beggars need grace, but joyful because in Jesus you are shown grace. 
So why is it that our personality still bristles at other people in church, in God's community? It's because we don't get grace, that's why. The reason we divide from people who aren't for real in the way that we want to be for real is because we don't get grace. The reason we're annoyed with people that want to wear coat and tie and sing hymn music, or we're annoyed with people that wear skinny jeans and want to sing contemporary Christian music, is because we don't get grace. That's why. That's the problem, is our understanding of grace. It's not their musical choice. The reason that we're angry with people who take forever to go deeper is because we don't get grace. The reason we find church tedious is because we don't get grace. C.S. Lewis in the Screw Tape Letters has this beautiful but kind of convicting image of where he argues that one of Satan's kind of greatest tools is to confirm your own thoughts that I can't relate to these other people in the pews who dress funny and smell weird and sing oddly. C.S. Lewis that's, argues that's one of Satan's greatest tools is to convince you that it's okay to entertain and run with that thought. I can't relate to them because they're weird. Right? If the church of Jesus is founded on grace, here's the other thing. Shouldn't we actually expect difficult people in the church? If it's founded on grace, wouldn't it naturally be true that the difficult people are the people who are coming first? That it's jacked up sinners who muck it up, who make church hard, who make it a struggle to be helpful and to enjoy it? If, if, if the church, if the center of the church is grace, those are the kind of people that are flocking to it. And this is the reality. This is also help you understand and enjoy community. When I came into the church, I didn't come as like this like funny, witty, preacher, RUF guy, and I'm not this funny, witty, preacher, RUF guy today. I brought a big old pile of baggage and big old pile of sin, and I brought it in the church and said, hey, I'm going to add this to y'all's community. And guess what? It's with me today. And the church still has to deal with me today. Y'all have to deal with me today. I've already offended a lot of y'all. Am I like, <laughs> hopefully not tonight, I don't know. But I know in one on, I mean, I know within relationships, I've already let people down here. Like, that's really frustrating. I'm supposed to be the guy who's supposed to be the pastor. And I haven't been a good pastor. When I entered the church, I didn't make it easier to deal with. I made the church harder to deal with. Guess what? When you join God's people, you're making it even more difficult. If you have complaints about the church, here's the people you should legitimately blame. You should blame me. You should blame David Jones. You should blame Elizabeth. You should blame Lizzie. You should blame Anthony. We all brought a bunch of junk into the church. We're all responsible for it. And if you complained about us, you'd be right. Because that's who the church is made up of. Jacked up people who needed grace. We made the church and we joined it even less desirable than it was previously. And it's already not very desirable. Right? But the reason we came is because there's grace there with God's people. And you may find that if you gather around grace and around Jesus, that you might have some good and pleasing experiences with God's people. I'll close with this really briefly. Because in some ways the application of this sermon is, the, is rest in grace and be with God's people. Uh, and, and a particular application is I would say this, join a church. In some ways... RUF would be most successful if we lost everybody to the local church. I would like, it would be sad because we'd have to move because we couldn't afford our housing, but, I mean, that would be success. It really would be. Um, the one piece of advice I'd have in finding fellowship is this. Listen to the sermons and see if Jesus is the answer. 
Because we are saying the church is centered around the grace of Jesus and the person and work of Jesus. If it's grace that sits at the, answer, at the center, they're going to talk about Jesus all the time. They're going to direct you to Jesus all the time. And it's only if Jesus is at the center, it's only if grace is at the center, it's only if faith in Him is at the center, that true community can happen. Because here's what can happen in the church, right? Is it becomes a Jesus plus message. There's Jesus, but you've got to add on to what He's doing. You're not legitimate unless you're adding to the work of Jesus. Right? Well, then you all of a sudden you have a church that actually doesn't welcome anybody. That only welcomes a certain select few. A church in which genuine community that welcomes a diversity of people doesn't really happen. Because it's not just Jesus. It's Jesus, well, plus you've got to vote a certain way, right? Plus you have to have a certain uh, devotional style, right? Find a church. I know that doesn't sound sexy, and church is annoying, right? Here's the story of C.S. Lewis's marriage that I think is analogous. He married a woman named Joy Davidman. Uh, they were not in love. They were acquaintances, and she was an American, and her sons lived in England, and she wanted to be able to stay in England. And so C.S. Lewis, out of kindness, just said, hey, I'll marry you so that you can stay here. Uh, this is the way a friend of mine told the story to me. He said they lived apart as friends. They didn't live together. He viewed it as an act of charity toward a woman who had no other way to stay in England. And this is what my, this is a former campus minister who said this, maybe that's like joining the church. You don't understand that all it is. But it seems like a kind of good thing, and so you do it. And in your mind, you say, well, and it kind of doesn't mean a whole lot anyways. It's just words. I'm just doing something that's kind of good for somebody else. That's what C.S. Lewis thought. But what happened over the course of his relationship with this woman, and it was an odd match. She was, he's kind of this dignified, eccentric English intellectual, and she was a divorcee from America. Nobody would have put them together, but as they spent more and more time together, then his legal, formal marriage became a real and heart marriage as well. And they fell in love. And she died of cancer a few years later, but he says that those years were the happiest years of his life, and she taught him to love. You know, the church is messy. It has a lot of annoying people. It has cocky people. It has stupid people. It has people that like boring hymns. And it has people that like cheesy contemporary Christian rock. But here's the reality. You kind of have to ask yourself this. In light of all that valid criticism about the people that are at church, why then does it still exist? And the only answer can be is because there's grace there. Let's pray.